Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. If you already use or want to use PowerShell to manage Microsoft Exchange, check out their free Microsoft Exchange PowerShell guide. It's five pages full of ready-to-use PowerShell snippets and real-life examples. The link is in the show notes. Hey, Yussi, what's up? Hey, Toby. When we are recording this, it's mid-December. And I'm sort of realizing now that I'm slowly but surely closing up, closing up the year at work. So it's, it's, it's been a great first year. So I, as some, some in the audience might recall, I set up a new company in January, so about 12 months ago. It's been going super well, but I also now realize that it's been super, how would I say it? It's been a lot of work, which has been fun, but now I also feel I, I really need to recharge during the Christmas break. So far here, all the kids and adults in the household are flu and sick free for now. And what often happens is that when you sort of see in the horizon that, okay, we've got two weeks off, then everybody gets sick at the same time. So keeping my fingers crossed, hoping that in the next two weeks, I will transform into a vacation mode for a couple of weeks and then start tackling 2022. That's mostly what's up here. What about for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you're uh, flu and sick free. That is quite the opposite that we have at the moment. So 75% of the household is currently sick. And the flu is obviously kicking around on kindergarten and more than 60% of all the kids are currently at home due to illness. So everyone got this flu. And they, we also have in Sweden something called Winterkrækhulken, which is like the, the winter stomach illness. So you, you essentially get the stomach bug. So half of kindergarten also got that. Luckily, we didn't get that. We, we got the, the normal flu. And in, in today's world, you know, with the pandemic and things like that, we're in a way just happy that we have the normal flu in, in that way. But, you know, when, when the kids have 40 degrees fever, which is about 104 Fahrenheit, uh, you know, nobody's happy about that. So it's been a, a few intense couple of days. So uh, I think now Christmas coming up, just like you, we might not actually let the kids back to kindergarten. So as soon as they are back healthy again, we'll possibly keep them home just to not get another round of the flu because this year has been fairly aggressive with, uh, with colds and flus. So yeah, additionally with the, the, that fun nighttime hiking with my friends picked up again because it's now wintertime and it's dark outside, really dark. So headlights go on and we go hiking into the dark woods at night. I'm glad we don't have any like exotic or dangerous animals around here in my parts of Sweden. I guess the, the most exotic thing we get to see is a deer or, or an elk if we're extremely lucky. So this is pretty, uh, pretty cool. It's a great exercise and also something very analog, obviously, compared to, uh, to what we're doing right now, sitting in our digital landscape. So I, I really enjoy that, you know, getting out and getting about into nature. But the additional thrill is when it's pitch black and you only have one headlight on your forehead, and then you need to walk 15 kilometers into the deep woods and out again. It's a, it's a pretty long road to walk when it's pitch black, but it's extremely fun. So I, I would recommend it to anyone who's not afraid of the dark. Obviously, that helps. If you are, it might be a way to, to build or muster up that. 
Um, but again, a word of caution, as I realized a lot of my friends and a lot of our listeners, I suppose, coming in from other parts of the world might not have the same friendly forests that we have in Sweden. So here, essentially, the, the worst thing that can happen is that you sprain your ankle or uh, you may, maybe you see a, a harmless spider, but you're afraid of spiders. And, and that's pretty much the dangers we have here. So use caution, obviously. If, don't take my advice just running into the woods at night because I don't know what lives in your wood. That sounds like fun. I mean, the hiking bits, not the flu season and everything else. So far, our household has been flu-free for the past couple of months, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. So today, this is episode 113, Trust No One, a look at the zero trust in 2022. So, so we thought, let's talk about zero trust, because that's been a topic that Microsoft is quite heavily pushing here and there as a message. And whenever I see perhaps a marketing email from Microsoft or somebody else mentioning zero trust, I, I get this feeling that I want to dive deeper into what it actually is beyond the marketing talk. So, so perhaps we start, Toby, how would you, if, if somebody approaches you when you are in the grocery store waiting for your turn to, to pay, how would you say what is zero trust in the context of of the Microsoft universe we are part of? So it's a great question. And I, I actually, now I hope next time I go to the grocery store, actually someone in line says, hey, I don't know you, but do you know about zero trust? And then we can have a conversation about that. I mean, just like the title entails, zero trust is you should not trust anything. And I, I mean, your internal routines, your network, your perimeter defense, whatever you have, don't, don't trust it, right? And there's also something that Microsoft usually say called assume breach. I, I wrote a, an article about that, two articles, one about tips for staying secure while working from home. So I'm, so I'm, so I'm pitching my own blog post there uh, where I talk a little bit about that and, and also embracing a software or a secure software development lifecycle where this is also a big part of, of shifting lift. The TLDR, the, the short version of what that is, uh, in, in my opinion, you know, to, to put it in layman terms that everyone understands is assume someone is already inside of your network, assume someone already have access to your identity platform, to your services, and just somewhere inside your network, they are lingering around waiting for the next ransomware attack or for, you know, exfiliating some data or, you know, injecting harmful scripts or harmful data. You just assume that you're already being breached. That, that to me is the zero trust mentality that, you know, don't, think that just because you enable a firewall on a VM or an app service that you're okay. You know, you run containers or you have a VM or whatever and you, and you enable the firewall. Does that, is that sufficient? No, it's not. So you, you need to always assume that someone is already on the inside when you enable those protections. How do you get them out? How do you identify them? How do you really uh, limit the impact? And I, I actually came off a call with someone at Microsoft just the other day this week, and we talked about this. And it was interesting because what they said on their side, and, and this is, I don't know if you still call them MSIT or whatever the division is that, that works with internal IT. And they also do some cybersecurity, obviously, uh, or a lot of it. And they said that it's, you know, with a zero trust, it means that if an attacker is already on the inside, which you should, again, assume, because you assume breach, even if they have access and they are on the inside, the access they have is extremely limited. Right. So it's not just about defending for threats coming in, but it's also when they're inside, the access they have is 
almost non-existent. So, so to me, that's the, the kind of bigger picture. Assume someone is already inside, and if they have access to something, ensure that that access is extremely minimal. So you don't use global accounts, don't use highly privileged accounts or apps with access to all kinds of things. And then, you know, when someone gets access to that, obviously they have access to everything that that app has access to, stuff like that. No, I really like this approach. And and perhaps key here is that Zero Trust is not a specific tool or just five different tools that you deploy. How I approach the whole concept is that it's more of a strategy or a, an approach to strategy on how do you secure everything. Uh, there's a report from Microsoft Security, and I think they used a company called the Hypothesis Group to conduct a survey on how different companies approach Zero Trust and, and what's the maturity levels on that. We can talk about the statistics in a bit. The link to the report is, the, is in the show notes. And I just read that before we started recording this. There's a lot of really good information in the report. And per, perhaps key there when you start reading that is that what's the driving force for zero trust? And obviously the pandemic is, is one because now people should or could be working from anywhere. But it sort of underlines that the zero trust existed before the pandemic, but COVID-19 accelerates the move to this sort of uh, strategy where you do not trust anything and you also assume breach. So looking at the report, and I read everything Microsoft has to offer on the topic, it, it sort of is these three things that you need to need to understand in, in terms of deploying zero trust. It's about verifying explicitly who's accessing, what are they accessing with what sort of device. Using the least privileged access, as you mentioned, do not use global admin accounts all the time, and assuming breach. So in a sense, it's three main topics, and these will, will then distribute into multiple different components and elements and services and whatnot. So I really like this, and I, I know we've spent some a uh, great deal of time, both of ourselves, to, uh, to work with and look into Zero Trust. But to make it a bit more tangible, just like myself, when I started looking at this, it was very conceptual. And it is very conceptual in a way that it's a kind of a guideline that helps you implement secure guidelines, if you will, for your organization or secure policies and ensuring you do the right thing. But to make it a bit more tangible, like what components do we have in Azure to kind of live by this? Do, do you have a list of that from the top of your mind? I'm glad that you asked because I do have a list. And what this reminds me of when we go the list list uh, through in a second, what this reminds me is that back in the day when people started talking about DevOps, was that maybe in 2008 or something like that, all companies I would speak to about DevOps would say, so what's the tool we need to deploy? And for the longest of times that the thinking was that let's deploy Visual Source Safe or Team Foundation Server or whatever it was called at the time. And then we're done and then we can move on with our days. And the same applies here. Zero Trust is a concept. It, it's a, a strategy approach that then can be enabled and enforced with a set of services. So perhaps we start with the, with, with the most obvious one, which is identities. So identities is a component of zero trust, the whole approach. 
So this is multi-factor authentication and or passwordless. It's automated risk detection and remediation. And also it's adaptive access policies. So if, if somebody were to ask me at the grocery store on a Friday evening, so I want to secure my identities in terms of getting to zero trust, what do I need? Well, you need to configure Azure AD. You might need to utilize identity protection, which is an Azure AD P2 service, and perhaps leverage Windows Hello as well for enforced authentication, perhaps the pins or the face detection and, and, and what have you. But in essence, it's about securing the identities, getting rid of legacy authentication and enforcing this in a, in a way that doesn't disrupt your employees from getting work done. Yeah, that sounds good. And it also reminds me of, uh, we, we recently rolled out uh, a bunch of employees through the Intune endpoint management. So, so we essentially got all the devices compliant in a bit more restrictive guidelines than we used to have. And uh, we also actively disallow any legacy authentication on any device and across any of our identities and things like that. And it was actually a pretty good exercise to do that because as soon as we flipped that switch, we could see in the audit logs and we could see logs where applications were trying to connect or accounts were trying to connect using legacy authentication. All of those were okay. We just didn't know about them, right? So some clients, some mobile phones that people set up, they were connecting to their accounts but they were using the legacy authentication protocols, which did not support MFA. So by disabling that, now granted, this is some time ago, this is not recent, but it, it just reminds me of that, that just by ticking the box, you inherently become so much more secure and in Azure AD and the identity platform does that for us. You can just pretty much define things in there and also conditional access you can use to fine tune a lot of those permissions and a lot of the capabilities. So I really like that. And, and I think you hit the, the nail of the head here that, if I had to choose one thing to secure right now, it's all the accounts, all the identities we have, because there will be identities with access to a lot of data in your organization. And at the end of the day, what do you want to protect? It's your data, whether that is PII or actual content in documents or whatever it is. At the end of the day, you want to protect the data. So that was a good, good first component. What else do we have? So in total, we have seven components. So identities is number one. Number two is apps. So you want to secure access to apps, obviously by leveraging the identities, that's one. But also having a granular access control to apps, who's using what, how do we discover possible shadow IT? Can we do a risk assessment on what sort of applications our employees are using? and also having a policy-based access control for apps, depending perhaps on your role or the network you're coming from or the device you're using or the work that needs to be done, what sort of access do we grant for different apps? And for this, the products would be Microsoft Defender for Cloud and Defender for Cloud Apps. And I know we mentioned this a couple of times in previous episodes, Defender for Cloud used to be called Azure Security Center and Azure Defender. And Defender for Cloud App used to be called MCAS, Microsoft Cloud App Security. I think I'm still recalling the old names as well. Yep, yep, correct. <laughs> so, so this is a lot of, I would say, configuration, but perhaps a lot of planning. So nowadays, what I often find that when I want to secure something or when I want to implement something, 
it's it's not about like back in the days you would install servers and and do a lot of configuration just to get things running now those things are running already but now you need to decide how do you want to configure them how do you want to restrain access how do you want to restrict what employees or people can or or shouldn't be doing and and that's probably the trickiest part here so defender for cloud apps is definitely the, the big chunk of of work here yeah and i i think that uh, this is something that i can agree to just taking a look at today i mean our organization is not that big but taking a look at the the defender for cloud apps or microsoft cloud apps cure the old name you know the the amount of things you can do in there is insane the amount of insights you get is also insane so it, it does require like you say quite some planning and prioritization where do you want to start because you you know it coming from nothing and going to enable this and then say let's let's embrace zero trust let's roll out defender for cloud apps let's make sure everything is green and we don't have any risks not going to work because everything is a risk right you know any app that requests to sign in and read your email that's a risk it's a low risk but it's a risk and then there's apps with full control to sharepoint or full control to all your documents or full control to your mailboxes um you know that might be flagged as a high risk and then you might have a lot of those apps for various valid business reasons. So I, I think you hit the, uh, the head on the nail there again. It's it's about strategy and planning. You know, the, the technical components are there, but getting this rolled out into the organization, regardless, you know, if you're an enterprise or a small uh, small shop, doesn't really matter. It, it does require, you know, some planning and, and prioritization because there will be a lot of things to, to take care of. But very good. I, I really like that this is part of you know, a, a tangible approach for what we need to check. So next on the list, first we had identities, then apps. The third one is infrastructure. So this is security operations with threat detection, cloud workload protection, but this also includes hybrid and visibility and access control to all of the infrastructure that you have. The specific apps or services for this would be Defender for Cloud again, but also something called the Azure AD Privileged Identity Management, meaning that we can restrict the, the access levels of our admins and power users so that not everybody's running with, with full credentials, full access rights all the time. And I would perhaps add in here uh, the Defender for Identity would also be something I would consider as part of the infrastructure bits of zero trust. When I read the guidance that Microsoft has, uh, one thing stuck to me was that you need to start treating everything, your service accounts, your your computer accounts, your your different different serv services and access endpoints. You need to start treating those as you would treat user identities. You need to secure them, you need to inform and, and enforce secure authentication. And you also need to have automated investigation in that sense, that you know what's happening. And, and if you need to do an exception on something, you at least know why, what, and when you're doing that exception. So, so speaking about that, you know, automating and getting these signals and being able to take action, that brings me to Microsoft Sentinel. I'm sure that has to be part of this list as a component, right? Yeah, it definitely is. So Sentinel 
as as well as as defender for cloud they go together so having having threat data collected and analyzed and having investigation capabilities being able to automatically respond to different security threats i would perhaps also pull threat intelligence capabilities from microsoft 365 as part of this but at the core of zero trust is also automation and orchestration yeah that makes sense and then uh, something that I took a look at is like all the endpoints, because uh, I just mentioned we rolled out Intune uh, you know, a long time ago now, but this is still fresh in my memory because there's a lot of lessons learned in doing that. So obviously Intune needs to be a part of this. Is there something else related to my endpoints or devices that we can do? Yeah, I, I would say so. So Microsoft typically likes to talk about endpoints and, and as part of this, you would have Defender for Endpoint. And through that, you get Intune capabilities, as you mentioned, but also Endpoint Manager, because you might still have system center infrastructure. You might have hybrid, uh, hybrid capable devices that you need to secure and monitor as well. I'd, I'd, I'd say that rolling out Intune, even for a small organization and having the whole Endpoint Management in place, that's a sizable investment in the sense that you need to plan ahead for that. You need to have the support in place, but you also need to keep up with the times that once it's deployed and there's new updates, new capabilities coming in, you need to react to those. So uh, as opposed to perhaps for identities and, and enabling MFA, you enable it now and you can just let it run for the next two years. You don't really need to worry about it. With endpoints, your employees are constantly purchasing new devices, finding out new ways to use those devices. And, and you need to adapt the whole endpoint management to support the, the people you manage, but also to allow them to still maintain the, the, the productive attitude instead of, of blocking everything. And, and this kind of brings me into the, the idea of you need to secure your network, right? And you get all these devices, you have the policies on them, but how, how do you ensure that, you know, now the correct individual is authenticated on that device, the device itself is secure or considered secure? How do you protect your network? Is there is there a way we can do that as well? Or do you just allow any device on? Yeah, there there's multiple ways for approaching this. And based on the zero trust strategy, Obviously, again, you will utilize Microsoft Defender for, for uh, cloud and cloud apps, both for on-prem, hybrid, and the cloud. But there's a lot of additional Azure capabilities. And I feel that Zero Trust doesn't explicitly say that please use Web Application Firewall for everything. But the whole idea is that you need to defend the network. So having threat protection in place. Perhaps that's true an application gateway, perhaps that's true Azure front door or something else, but then also having all traffic encrypted. And it goes without saying that obviously all traffic has to be encrypted, but it's quite often that you talk with somebody and they go, yeah, we're actually using HTTP or FTP because of reasons and we don't have time to fix this now. So as, as we said in the, in the beginning of this, this episode, if zero trust is a strategic approach, then also the future needs of the business have to conform to, to whatever policies you sit in place. So 
if you put in perhaps an Azure policy, more, more of a technical approach here, if you put an Azure policy that simply says, RDP is denied from everywhere, we all use Azure Bastion as an example to accessing virtual machines. That's that. But then what if somebody approaches the IT and says, well, actually we need RDP because of reasons and we cannot use Bastion because it, it's unable to transfer files or do something sp specific that we need. Then from IT, you can say, well, yeah, but it's denied. So, so you have to get learn to live with this. Or you try to find a way for those exceptions while still maintaining a secure approach. And this, I feel, is the challenge because you're continuously trying to evolve the security posture, but then you will have these small exceptions on the side and you'd like to serve those needs as well. So now we've gone through six identities, apps, infrastructure, automation and orchestration, endpoints, network, and the last one is obviously data. Any, any thoughts on, on data and securing that? Yeah, so uh, so first to touch on the on the previous point, those dialogues uh, resonates very well. And, and again, security should never be an afterthought. I, I think security and protecting all the data, because that what we're talking about in the end is all the data you have, right? Um, you know, if, if someone get, gets access to your VM, but there's nothing on there, then, you know, they, they have access to that VM and maybe you destroy it. But if they get access to something that contains all your data or parts of your data, then, then that's a big risk. So I, I think just to, to go back to the previous point very slightly is security needs a seat at the table, if you will. We, we need security to be a priority because I've also been in these dialogues. Now we also run over HTTP. There's no reason for us to do it. We just don't have time uh, or because you know every, everything needs to run encrypted or uh, we didn't enable encryption in our storage or we didn't do this, we didn't do that because we just hit the button and, and smashed it out of the park. Everything is running now. We just need to move forward. So a lot of organizations have traditionally seen anything security as kind of a, a, an anchor, right? Slowing you down. So productivity and product development and things like that is one thing. And then security was always the anchor. But I see this now go more hand in hand. And it all comes down to this final point, at least for me, this is my experience, that it all comes down to the data, right? When you can sell the story that, just look at all the data breaches last year or this year or whenever in recent times, ransomware, uh, data leaks, PII information leaking out, things like that. The cost for that, even for a minimal impact or for a, for a minimal data breach is so much more than investing at all in, in any type of security. So put that into your budget, make sure you protect your data because again, that is what it's all about protecting your your, uh, your employees, protecting information, protecting PII and data. So that is the final point here, then the, the last component being data. Obviously you have Defender for Cloud apps. You can, again, access the policies and we um, take a look at the access policy. And I know we talked about this just now, a couple of minutes ago, we talked about the, the cloud apps or Defender for, for Cloud apps, where you have a review of risk of apps with high permissions. For example, like I mentioned, you can, you can have apps that access SharePoint files. You have apps that access your mailbox or signs in as, as a specific user or does this or that high privileged thing. These are things you can use, you know, Defender for Cloud apps for. And it, all of that contains, you know, some kind of road into your data. Because I recently had a discussion with someone who said, no, we, we don't share files. We disable file sharing externally and therefore we're safe, all right? 
but they didn't enroll any security or approval workflows or anything for third-party apps. So anyone in the organization, and that, that's an organization that, for whatever reason, have multiple global admins and multiple, I don't mean two dedicated ones, I mean pretty much all of IT and all power users have a global admin account. And they grant access to apps left and right, you know, because it's, it's easy. You hit the button and this app automates something in your mailbox, including reading all your email. You have no idea where that data goes. So talking about data, Defender for Cloud Apps can help with that. But I know we also talked in an episode not too long ago about something called Azure Purview. And this has to tie into this somewhere, I'm sure. If it doesn't, then we need to find a way because I, I think that is something that can definitely help us here. But I think you know a little bit more about Purview than I do. Do you know how that fits in? Yeah, I know a little bit about it, but for now, I haven't had a chance to do a production deployment of Purview. So the whole idea with Purview is that it allows you, you to find and classify data. And oftentimes that data might sit in an abandoned SQL Server database hosted on an on-premises virtual machine. So the idea with Purview is that you scan for all sorts of data, and then when you find data, you can classify that, and then you can start labeling that data. What's sensitive, what's public, what should be archived, and perhaps you're then applying different sort of access policies or archival policies on top of that data. I, I, I feel it's super interesting, but also I feel that deploying something like Purview, it doesn't happen on the sort of first stage of going to zero trust. So there's this maturity model. And I, I think all frameworks, all approaches always require some sort of a maturity model. So this has three stages, the first stage, the advanced stage and the optimal stage. And I'd, I'd say that Purview comes with the last two advanced or optimal. So the first stage is, as you might imagine, MFA enabled, device compliance done, you're detecting logins for anomalous activity. Your network design is so that network access is, is limited, networks are segmented, you have some sort of security in between access to the different networks. That's the first stage. The advanced one, the second stage, you, you add real-time risk analytics, you correlate the security signals across the environment. So Sentinel, uh, Defender for Cloud, and you also proactively find and fix different issues and, and vulnerabilities. The optimal stage then is dynamically enforcing policies, having an automated threat detection, getting all the security and productivity signals analyzed with something called self-healing. I'm not sure what this entails, but I feel we have a long way to go until we get to the optimal stage. Yeah, and I, I mean, so we're also on our journey here. And I think we've talked about this in many episodes in the past. And I think we've both written multiple articles around that. For me, security is a journey, right? There is, you don't do 100% of security and then you're done. It's a journey and it's continuous effort and it requires a lot of effort to get it right and to, uh, to lock things down. And even so, again, assume breach. Right, you, you enabled everything. You did all these things we just talked about. We have all these services. We rolled them out. We restricted everything. Still, assume breach. Assume someone is already on the inside. What do you do? 
you know, do you, do you kick them out? How do you do that? How do you identify them? You know, the, the thought process around this never sleeps. And I mean, there's people working full-time only as, um, you know, in a SOC center, just analyzing these threats. There's people working with the CISOs, uh, you know, figuring all of these things out on a daily basis. And the threat landscape just keeps changing every single day. So I'm, I'm part of this kind of a roundtable uh, group with a bunch of CISOs and CIOs where we talk about how we roll out our security practices, what we do, and, you know, how do we achieve our SOC 2 audits or ISO 27001 and things like that. But then we also touch quite often on the security because a big part of compliance, which I work a lot with, is also security. How do we secure all our endpoints like we just talked about or all the data or all our services? How do we do that? And you know, you could define the journey for zero trust from zero to 100%. But even so, you, you could say that I now enabled 70, 75% of these components or the security capabilities in the components, which is very good. But it's you will never have 100% part one because the features and capabilities in these components will change. And by the time you reach halfway, there's going to be new components and, and some will be deprecated. And this is just an ever-changing journey. So I think my recommendation here is think about security holistically as something you need to put like product development, right? Something that needs attention at all times. You need to evolve, you need to change, you need to adapt every single day. And you need a, a roadmap and this roadmap will change and you should accept that because you cannot have an old roadmap for new security threats, right? When something new comes to light. So I think that is for me a, a, an extremely important takeaway and the benefit I get from zero trust now coming back to, to these things in the maturity model is I really like here, like the first stage, you might think, well, that's only the first stage, but the first stage is better than no stage at all, right? So just like you said, enable MFA, uh, device compliance, uh, you know, detecting the logins and find anomalous activities and, you know, uh, lock down your networks, things like that. It might seem basic or easy, but you do that, you're well on your way to get things done. Because if, if you start now with security efforts, you know, coming from, I just enabled the firewalls, I just enabled the tick, tick the box for run HTTPS on all my Azure functions, that's not security. That's just a feature for one service that you ticked a box for. That is not securing your data, not securing your organization. That is a good feature and a good capability to, to enable in a service, but doesn't protect you, doesn't protect your data. So I think this is a, actually a pretty good guideline. I know, Related to that, I took an assessment from Microsoft, and we'll put the link, link to that also in the show notes. So you, you have this zero trust assessment you can do to kind of figure out where you are on that journey. And I really like that. So I would recommend that. Just take a look at it. Obviously, nothing is written in stone, but it's a, it's a good thing to, to just eyeball to see. It will ask you questions. Like, are you doing these things? And then you can just say yes, no for yourself. You can even write them down or print it out, whatever you want might not want to input your security answers into an online tool, then don't do that. Just download the survey or uh, get the questionnaires. So you, so you at least have these things you can ask yourself and your team, do we do these things? Do we have the MFA enabled? Do we have compliance? Do we have a CM like Microsoft Sentinel? Things like that. For me, that has been extremely valuable. So I, I think these things are you know, top of mind when it comes to, to that. So, so what, is the, like, what is the future of Zero Trust? Because I, I think we're ending, coming close to the end of what we can talk about in, in terms of zero trust on a high level. But what, like, what's the future here? We, we've heard this now 
on and off for years. Where does this go? So it's it's been a big topic, especially this year, and I feel zero trust will be an even larger topic in the next couple of years. So I, I did find some reflections from Microsoft. I th think these were in the official white paper for zero trust. So the link is in the show notes as well. And in there, there's a bit of prediction for the coming years on how zero trust will evolve and expand. So there's going to be deeper integration with unified policy enforcement, implying that obviously you will have Azure policies, but then you will have different policies on how you can access different types of data and docs and, and, and labeled content. Threat intelligence will obviously evolve and it will have better automated response. And Zero Trust will also expand more to software and DevOps processes. Perhaps this is part of the DevSecOps approach as well. And then a more efficient security posture management. And what's interesting here, the last bit is dedicated security advisory services within companies. So if a company really invests in zero trust, they will find themselves in a position where they realize we need an internal security advisory team that will look around at our security posture and recommend the next steps we need in order to achieve zero trust. Very nice. I, I think that I think that sounds really good. And it also shows that, you know, the world is getting more ready to to embrace security as a you know as a first hand citizen, not not just an afterthought after something happened. Indeed, indeed. I, I, I think there's a lot to sort of digest here. Make sure to take a look at the ebook, the assessment, and the white paper and the report we put in the in the show notes. I've read them all, and I felt that after sort of reading here and there at the same time, I, I got a more holistic understanding on what zero trust really, really, really includes, and sort of what's the direction for any given company if they want to start the journey with zero trust and getting more and better security for their environments. Okay, and the last bit, the unexpected question. Last time, I think I did ask you, Toby. So this week, it's your turn to ask me. Okay, so here's a good one for you, because I know you love to get new gadgets, right? Yes. What is the best gadget that you bought this year, but at the same time, it's a gadget you do not really need? So this year, I've, I've definitely acquired less gadgets than perhaps in the past couple of years. And I, I like to think most gadgets I get, well, nowadays, those are gadgets mostly for the home office, that at the time of purchase, they were really, really needed. But perhaps <laughs> after a couple of weeks of use, you go, well, I really after didn't a few hours. <laughs> yeah, I really didn't need this. It's fun. But it was more and more of a nice to have than a must have. So there's perhaps a couple, and and let me pick one of those. And this is something I got about six weeks ago. It sits on my my desk at home, and I'm I'm not sure what the official name of the device is, but it's this LED light you put on top of your main display, and there's a small remote control that allows you to dim and change the temperature of the LED lamp. So it sort of gives you this overhead lights in front of the of the monitor and and part of the desk. 
giving a bit bit of an ambient lighting, especially if you work in the evenings. And I've I've seen this a lot with people on Instagram and different blog posts. I, I really didn't need this. Then a colleague of mine said, hey, you see, I got this. It's the best thing ever. So I looked it up. I said, well, it's not that expensive. Let me get it just to see if it's good. So I've had it now for six weeks. And I have to admit, it's it's quite nice. But at the same time, it's something I really don't need. Occasionally, I forget to, forget to turn it on, and it's fine. But if I turn it on, it's a little bit nicer. But that's mostly it. <laughs> I, I know the device you're talking about. I don't know the the name or, or brand, but I know you can put one of those on top of your monitors, just like if you have a wall painting hanging yep. on the wall and, and you have a, a light coming down to um, you know, um, highlight your, your painting. This is a similar thing, but it shines not on the actual monitor, but yep. on the table. So you, you get yep. this, if you're writing a paper in the dark or whatever, you you get you know supposedly less eye strain and less headaches and, you know, Stuff like that. I don't know. I, I never saw a need for it, but it, I mean, it looks nice. It's a very clean thing to have. But again, I'm a minimalist. So I, I have <laughs> my microphone, my, my cheap microphone, my very old monitor, which is now, I guess, eight years, coming in eight years old. I just have my old devices. I don't care. But it's very neat and clean. So so to me, that's the most important. Maybe one of those lights might might be a nice touch, but I also don't think I need it. Yeah, it's it's something I plan on keeping, but perhaps when I move to the new house in the coming months, this might be something I'm not installing immediately. It might stay in the box. And then I recall, oh yeah, I had that. Let me install it now. It's nice. I will put the link in the show notes just in case somebody wants to see how it looks and and what the brand is and, and how do you install and how the remote control looks. It's nice, but definitely not something you need. All righty. Thank you again for joining this week on episode 113 on Zero Trust. And we hope you join us next week as well. All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.